And today's scripture, I'm going to read, and I don't actually, oh, it is John 16, 5 through 11. Okay. But now I am going away to the one who sent me, and not one of you is asking where I am going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father, and, no, and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of the world has already been judged. All right, so we're in week four of our series called God With Us. And uh, looking at John, or Jesus, through John chapters 14 and 17, his final instructions to his disciples as he heads on his way to the cross. And uh, as we're, today we're going to pick up in chapter 16, but just a brief recap before we get there. So a few weeks ago we started off looking at, well, the, the, the premise for all this is chapter 13, where Jesus has the last, the last supper with his disciples. There he washes their feet, and at that meal he tells them that he's going to be killed. And not only that, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be killed, and that even they, the disciples, are going to be betraying him. And so by the time we get to chapter 14, the disciples are pretty nervous. They're grieving the loss, knowing that everything they think about in Jesus and love about him, that he's dying, he's leaving. And so Jesus opens 14 by saying, do not be afraid, but trust in me. And he explains how they can trust him. And this was a few weeks ago we looked at this, that Jesus said, because I'm sending my Holy Spirit to dwell with you and he will be with you and and he will be closer to you than I am to you physically when my spirit comes and all of me will dwell with you at that point, right? And then we looked at 15 a couple weeks ago and he starts off 15 by saying that Jesus says that I am the true vine and you are the branches. And when you abide in me, you will bear fruit. So remain in me and the life of the vine will come out of the branches. The life of Christ through his spirit will pour out of us as we become more like him and his life will pour out of us through his spirit. And then last week, we looked at the next part of chapter 15, where we saw Jesus, well, and the rest of the section, over and over again, Jesus commands his people to obey his command to love one another sacrificially as he has loved us. And that's so far where we've been looking at in the series as Jesus, again, is on this final walk to his death. He's left the upper room. He's walking towards the garden. He's about to die. And these are the last few minutes of conversation he has with his disciples. And so now we want to jump into chapter 16, uh, what we're looking at for this week. And and just the the prelude to that, though, is right at the end of 15, I want to start there because it's between that. And and at the end of 15, Jesus is getting the disciples ready for the persecution that's about to come because a whole lot of pain is coming their way. And so he says this in 15 verses 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. And he says, a slave, in verse 20, is not greater than his master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they're going to persecute you too. So Jesus tells them heavy persecution is on the way. And get ready for it because it's coming. And notice Jesus' continual emphasis here that they, they should be so much like Jesus, the disciples, that they will experience the same things that happened to Jesus. Not They should be doing the same stuff because when they do the stuff of Jesus, they're going to experience the same things that Jesus experienced as far as the persecution and the death. Because if they aren't actually living and loving like Jesus, they don't have to worry about anything, right? If they just believe in him and don't worry about actually emulating him and living out his life, there's no fear. There's no persecution coming. The persecution only comes for them if they actually live their lives the way that Jesus did. And so then Jesus opens up chapter 16 and verse 1, and he says, I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. 
which is amazing because he knows this is a real possibility for his disciples, that they could abandon him. In fact, at that very moment, as they're walking, he has a disciple who has abandoned him who's about to send him to his death, being Judas. So Jesus knows that there is very real possibilities that his closest disciples could turn against him because the coming persecution is going to be intense upon them. And so this is why he's leaving his spirit. And then he says in the next verse, in verse 2, he says, For you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. So Jesus straight up tells the disciples they're going to be killed for their faith. Right? Not, not maybe, but he says you will be killed. And they're going to be kicked out of their communities. Remember, back then, being kicked out of a synagogue it was a little different than today being kicked out of a church. You, someone has, faces a church discipline of getting kicked out of a church. Here, it's not a big deal. You just go to the next church down the road. Back then, to get kicked out of a synagogue meant you had no place in the community. There was one synagogue in a community. You get kicked out of your synagogue, it means you lose your family, you lose your, fl- lose your friends, you lose your influence. You have no relationships in the community when you get kicked out. So Jesus says, you're going to lose everything. And don't lose your faith when you do. And why are they going to lose those things? Again, because they are following Jesus. Their lives are looking like him. They're doing the things that Jesus did and saying the things that Jesus said. And so when they act like Jesus, they're going to be treated like Jesus was treated. That's Jesus' point. So everything we see from Jesus really shows that he expects them to actually be following him and to be living and loving like him. Then we get to verse 4. He says, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, this isn't a maybe, when they happen, when you are killed, when you are persecuted, you will remember remember my warning. I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you a while longer. So Jesus explains to them this stuff to them, not so that they run from persecution or avoid it, but just so they know that when it comes, they understand why it's coming. The persecution is coming upon you because you've chosen to live in love like me. And that they don't abandon their faith when he does. So again, Jesus is very clear that this road of obedience is not going to be easy for them. It's not going to be comfortable and it's not going to be safe. It's actually going to take their life and it's going to involve a lot of persecution. And we know this is true because all of the apostles die of martyrdom except for John. In fact, Jesus, uh, Jesus, one of Jesus' closest disciples, James, died within 10 years, had his head cut off by Herod. Only lived 10 years longer. The others, the most anyone else lived was just 30 years beyond it. If Peter and, and a couple of the others lived in the, into the, just 30 years beyond Jesus. John was the only one who lived a long life, but that was still a life filled with persecution and pain and hardship. Even the ancient historians say he was boiled alive in a vat of oil and all this other stuff happened to him, right? He was thrown in prison and, and beaten. And so the disciples, again, are freaking out that Jesus says he's going to die, but now they get to add to them mourning over his loss, saying that, and you're also going to be persecuted and die. So this is a wonderful way to cheer a group up as you're heading to your death, right? Setting the disciples up. Good things are coming, aren't they? What a great farewell, farewell message from Jesus. And then he gets to verse 7, and in verse 7 he says this, But in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. But if I do go away, then I will send him to you. So he says, all of that to say... It's the best possible thing that I leave, because when I leave, I will send my Holy Spirit. Now, this to me is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, of the promises of Jesus, that Jesus actually thinks this is an awesome thing, for him to die and go away. 
The disciples may not believe this so much. Because remember, they are grieving over his, over his imminent death because what have they experienced with Jesus? These last three years, they, they've seen Jesus raise the dead. They've seen him deliver demons. They, they've seen him calm a storm. They've seen him love them in ways no one has ever loved them before. They've seen Jesus has made God visible to them in, in, in such real practical ways. And he's given them hope and a purpose. And he's been a strong shepherd that has walked with them this whole time. And now Jesus says, well, that's great. But you know what's better than all that? when I die, because then my Holy Spirit will be with you. This is just insane for Jesus to say that. You think when those words of the disciples are at. Again, imagine being in their position, a poor fisherman from a poor town, of, a town that people consider was a, was a nothing along the Sea of Galilee. There were poor people in a boring place, of boring lives, and all of a sudden Jesus walks into their world. The only thing that got them passionate previously was a hatred for Rome. And then Jesus shows up and turns their world upside down. And, and they can tell these differences. They leave their families. They leave their jobs. They leave their lives. And they give everything up and they follow Jesus. For three years, they learn from him. And they watch him perform miracle after miracle and give wisdom they've never heard before. They watch themselves in the inner circle of this man who's turning the world upside down, who speaks with wisdom they never imagined before, who walks on water, who raises the dead, and who says that he's the true king. And on top of that, their expectation is that he's going to destroy Rome. They're going to reign with him. And this is the Jesus they're following. And they've given their lives for him. They've committed to him, and now Jesus says he's going to die and he's going to leave. And the best possible thing for them is his death, because the Holy Spirit will come. Think the disciples understood that? Not a chance in a million years. And why it's no surprise that when he is arrested, they all flee and scatter because their whole worlds have fallen apart. Peter denies him three times because their whole world has fallen apart when Jesus leaves. And Jesus says, you don't need to be afraid because you know what's better than all that? Even me being right with you, my spirit coming to dwell with you. And so they don't believe him. They don't think it's true. And I don't think that many of us would think this is true either, that having the Holy Spirit with us would be really that much better than being there with Jesus. I mean, in fact, today when a lot of people talk about the Holy Spirit, people get kind of nervous. Or they get really maybe too excited sometimes, depending on which perspective you come from. People might get nervous if, you've, if when you associate the Holy Spirit, you associate maybe different ways in which the Spirit has been abused over the years by the church, or just kind of the funky stuff. And you think, if we start talking about the Holy Spirit, people are going to start swinging from chandeliers and falling down on the ground and shouting out, going crazy. And people get a little nervous by that, while others may get excited. Um, or maybe people get a little excited because they think, when they think of the Holy Spirit, they think of all these wonderful feelings of Jesus that just make them feel like those, those soft, warm fuzzies all over them. Or they think of maybe of the healing of the power and the ministry of, of tongues and prophecy and all that other stuff. And, and, and all this stuff may be great, and those are great things to talk about, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. And so what we want to talk about today is what does Jesus mean when he says, it is better for me to die and leave and the Holy Spirit be with you? That's what I want to talk about this morning. Because Jesus is very clear in the context of what he's talking about, of why he says it's better that they have the Spirit than him. And so to do that, we're just going to recap the last few weeks of some of the things we've been talking about as we move forward with chapter 16. So the question then is, why does Jesus say having his Spirit is better than him physically being with them? And the first we looked at a few weeks ago was in verse 16 of chapter 14. And Jesus initially says, I will send another advocate. 
And another advocate, remember we looked at that before, I pulled out those two apples and we saw the two things. One is advocate, which is the Greek legal term that was used at the time that's emphasizing that the Spirit is for us. He is fighting for us. He is alongside us for our benefit, for our welfare. But the key word there was another, as we looked at a few weeks ago, because another means that Jesus is saying, the Spirit that I'm sending is just like me. It's identical to me. So when I'm sending the Spirit, I'm not just sending some random secondary thing. All of me is available to you. I am coming another identical to me. I'm sending the spirit who makes all of me available to you and he will dwell with you and then in verse 17 he talks about the spirit is the spirit of truth and the spirit dwells with them and will dwell with them for eternity when he's with them and then verse 26 he says that the spirit will teach them all things and remind them of all the things that jesus said so jesus is showing that they don't need to be afraid of him going Because he's going to be with them, he is for them, he will dwell with them, all of him will be with them, and he will continue to teach them and remind them of all the things that he said. So you see from chapter 14, all this stuff Jesus is doing for the disciples and to the disciples of comforting when they're in pain. Then we got to chapter 15. At the end of 15, Jesus says this in verse 26. He says, but I will send you the advocate, the Holy Spirit, The spirit of truth, he will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. He will testify about me. And you must also testify about me because you've been with me from the beginning. So here we see the spirit gives testimony about Jesus. The spirit will also testify, he says the disciples will also testify about Jesus here as well. Now again, that idea of advocate, that word is a Greek legal term, right, from a courtroom that he will be, he'll be for us, but so is the word testify. It comes right out of the Greek courtroom language, that he will bear witness. So it says the Spirit is an advocate for us, and he will bear witness, like in a witness stand, a courtroom, of who Jesus is. That's what the Spirit is going to do. He's going to be give testimony to Jesus. But not just Jesus will be giving testimony. In this case, he says also the exact same word is used for us, for the disciples, saying, and you too will bear witness for me when the Spirit comes in this way. And you will bear fruit for Jesus in this way. So here clearly, Jesus is saying that it's not just the Spirit's job to bear witness, but it's the disciples' job as well. And so therefore, the next one is the advocate will testify about Jesus as well. That's one of the reasons why Jesus says it's better. Now, next we're going to go to chapter 16. So this is the verse we just looked at, verse 7, where he says, in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. But if I do go away, then I will send him to you. So this is the context for this. Right? And so now he's going to say specifically the most important thing to Jesus of why it's important that he goes and his spirit comes. And it's right here in verses 8 through 11. And so he says this, and when he comes, this is the next verses, and when he comes, he will, I will convict the world, or sorry, he, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. So here is Jesus' penultimate reasons for why he needs to go. He will convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. Nine, regarding sin because they do not believe in me. Ten, regarding righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you no longer are going to see me. And eleven, regarding judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So these three specific things, Jesus says, are the reasons why he needs to go. And the Spirit comes to convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, in this passage, to convict in this area, it means to show someone that they're guilty of sin and they need to repent. 
And so don't forget the context again. Jesus has just explained that the world, in chapter 15, the world is going to judge the disciples, right? They're going to kill them. They're going to judge them as being unworthy. And they're going to be under the power of the ruler of the prince of air, under the power of Satan. They're going to try to wipe out and destroy the disciples. But Jesus is saying, my spirit is an advocate for you against them, right? I am going to convict them of their sin, of their judgment that is upon them and their lack of righteousness. And Jesus, Jesus will explain that they have nothing to fear. Because he is their advocate, right? They have nothing to fear when he is their advocate because he is so much greater than those that are in the world. They have nothing to fear from the world, well, other than maybe a horrifically painful death, but Jesus seems not emphasizing that part. He seems to be emphasizing the part that he is with them, right? Now, the first examples of the Spirit work, which is interesting in chapter 14, 1 through 15, is all focused on what the Spirit does for the disciples and to the disciples. But you notice the shift here as he's talking about the real reason why the Spirit is so important for it to come, isn't so much what he does to the disciples. It's actually the focus now is what he's doing for the world. He shifts that focus here. That his focus is not so much what he's going to to the disciples, but through the disciples. And it's not just that they're going to feel better or be more comfortable or feel more safe. In fact, he pretty much guarantees they won't be more comfortable safe or safe. In fact, they're going to be a lot less comfortable as a result. And in this passage, Jesus is saying that the reason he needs to go is that when he leaves, the Spirit will come and he will convict the world of their sin of unbelief. He will point them to his righteousness through his Spirit because now he's gone and he's working through us. And he will show them that Satan has been judged and Satan has been lost. Has lost. And all of this points to the fact that, that Jesus is saying that his work of reaching the lost is limited when he is here. Because when he is here, he's limited to one person. And he says, when I go, all of me will be available to all of you. And the impact, the scope of Jesus' work is going to be magnified exponentially. You know, D.A. Carson is one of the most renowned uh, Reformed scholars alive today. And he, he quotes on this passage in his commentary in John. He says this, but now that Jesus is going, how will that convicting work be continued? Now, he says he will convict the world. So how is that going to happen with Jesus gone, he asks. It is the continued by the paraclete, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, who drives home this conviction in the world precisely because Jesus is no longer present to discharge the task. So he can convict the world because he's gone. He can now do it better because he's gone. Check this out. Undoubtedly, this kind of conviction is driven home to the world primarily through Jesus' followers, that's us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, who live their lives in such growing conformity to Christ that the same impact on the world is observed through those Christians as when Jesus himself lived out his life before the world. Right, you get what that's saying? So how will the world be convicted? By Jesus' followers, empowered by the Holy Spirit, who live their lives so much like Christ that their impact on the world is the same as Jesus's. Do we believe that? Again, check that out. He says, Jesus' followers who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, live their lives in such growing conformity to Christ that the same impact on the world is observed as when Jesus himself lived out his life before the world. That is how the Spirit will convict the world. Instead of one man, Jesus, Jesus intends to be evident through every follower of Christ. Christians should live lives so much like Jesus that their impact on the world should be the same as Jesus' impact on the world. That's Jesus' expectation. In fact, even greater because there's more of us. That's his point. We will do even greater things through him. Do we believe that? 
And so Jesus then comforts, and he quotes, comforts his disciples who are freaking out about the imminent loss of Jesus and his departure by saying the best possible thing is for me to leave and to send my Holy Spirit because then my spirit will convict the world of their sin through you. They'll be convicted of their sins of unbelief because of the way in which you live in love like me. So Jesus says, don't worry about my death or even your death because I got something so much better coming. My Holy Spirit is coming and it's worth your pain, it's worth your suffering because through the persecution and through you living your lives like, living your lives like I do, the world will come to know me. Now, does anyone feel that this may be not the most motivating speech? That it's better that I go so that you can suffer, likely die, but as a result of that, many people will come to know me. Your spirit-empowered death and suffering will lead to the world coming to Christ. It may seem a little anticlimactic for disciples that are already mourning. It may seem like a strange answer and wouldn't they be asking, but what about us? Like, that, that's, that's great for you and your glory, but what about us? Jesus says, I am with you and I will dwell with you for the sake of you becoming more like me, that many more could come to know me. And this is the coolest part, Jesus says, that people will come to know me. But in order for this to be exciting for the disciples, it means Jesus assumes something about his disciples. What is he assuming about his disciples' perspective? And that would be he makes the assumption that the disciples care more about the world coming to Jesus than they do about their own comfort and pain and suffering. That's an assumption Jesus makes about his disciples, that chief on their list of concerns is the world coming to know Christ. Otherwise, all of this is meaningless and it means nothing. It, wouldn't be, it could have been so much better for Jesus just to double down on saying, I will be with you and I will comfort you and I will heal you and I will carry you and I will be with you. I, I will do everything I can to shelter you from all the pain and hardship. That seems like it would have made sense, but instead Jesus says, I'm going to love you and I'm going to be with you. But I recognize it's going to involve a lot of pain. But again, the joy is I will be with you and the world will come to know me as a result. It's quite amazing a passage when you think about for today because the, the ideas that are so much more popular today, ideas like moral therapeutic deism, right? Where it's just all about everyone needs to feel good or better about themselves. The prosperity gospel, I mean, this message just kind of destroys and obliterates the prosperity gospel. It says it's all about wealth and health and, and me getting more. Or the one I think that's the most popular today of the narcissistic gospel. I mean, a gospel that's just completely centered around me and my desires and my wants, and God wants his best for me, and he wants me to live my best life now in the way that I determine his, the, my best life now, that I'm the one that gets to decide what I want best. A, a gospel that's like a buffet, right, that I get to go and, and pit, well, I'll take that salvation, I'll take the blessing, I'll take the comfort, but that stuff about lordship and, 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 and suffering and, 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 and sacrifice, you know what, we'll just leave that on the table, I'll just take those things I want. Jesus doesn't leave room for that in his message here. In his message to the disciples, he says, everything Jesus is doing is to draw the world unto himself. Everything revolves around that. I feel if Jesus were to give this message today, it would not be very popular at all. It wouldn't get very high on the Facebook analytics, right? It wouldn't be on your feed. It would just get buried instantly because no one would listen to it. It'd get lots of dislikes and downvotes. Because what's the question we want to know today is, what's in it for me? What, what do I get out of this? 
Christians oftentimes today kind of seem to have like a trickle-down economics view of the gospel where we expect that, you know what, just give me everything I want, all the stuff I need, and then, you know, passively over time, I mean, good stuff will pass on to others, right? I mean, as long as I'm blessed and I get a new house and I get the new car and I get all this stuff and God takes really good care of me, and the expectation is, I don't know, I mean, just because of that, other people should be blessed as I try and live a good life. And maybe 30 to 40 years from now, my next-door neighbors will find out I'm a Christian, and, and maybe they'll return to Christ, maybe not. But, I mean, that's not up to me. That's the Spirit's job. My job is just to live a good life and experience God's blessing in my life, and everything else is up to the Spirit. We have a very passive understanding of this, much of the world, the Christian world today. And to me, that's why so many Christians or churches today look more like country clubs than the early church. Places of people that all look like each other, talk like each other, act like each other, believe like one another. And, whereas the early church was a mess. The early church had slaves and masters sitting next to each other in the church. Prostitutes and the wealthy, the broken and the, those that are hurting next to the wealthy and, and, and the slave masters. I mean, it was an incredible mix of people who hated one another right in the room oftentimes. And it was interesting because back in that time, people kept trying to divide the early church because it was such a mess. And they wanted to divide into Gentile churches and Jewish churches and, and keep the ideologies in one and the Romans over here and the, and, and the Greeks over here and, and get them all separated in, in different ways. Right, Roman, Greek, same group of people, sorry. But, uh, uh, you know, they were trying to separate them in the different ways. But Paul would have nothing of that. He said, no, the slaves must reach out to the masters and the masters must reach out to the slaves. The Jews must reach out to the Gentiles. The Gentiles must care for the slaves. He wouldn't let them separate it. He forced them to bring all these different ideologies together because he said, it's not about your comfort, but it's about the kingdom. It's about Jesus and his plans, right? And so we need to keep our eyes focused on him and be willing to have any degree of discomfort because God wants all nations to come to him. Over and over, Paul does this. And, but yet in the midst today of all of our consumerism, and, and it's so easy to lose sight of what the Holy Spirit has actually come to do. And yes, to, to draw us to himself. Yes, because he loves us and wants to see healing. But so much more, the greater purpose of all of this and what he's doing in our lives is he wants the world to come to know him. And the way that he does that primarily is through us living and loving like him. So that we can be Jesus' testimony to the world. That's what he's saying here to the disciples. And this is the message that Jesus is hammering home again and again to his disciples in his last few minutes alive with them as he's telling them that his spirit is here to testify about Jesus to the world and to convict them through sin through the lives of the disciples as they choose to sacrificially love one another, lay their lives down to others and become more and more like Jesus and allow the life of the vine to come out of them. This is the message he's giving them in his final message as he walks to the cross. And so, see, Jesus says, to go back to our list before, of why does he need to send the Spirit? Because he wants to convict the world of sin. And then the last thing he's going to tell them here in verse 12 through 14, he says this, he says, I have so much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So Jesus begins by saying, there's so much more I want to tell you, but it's more than you can bear. Anyone hear Jack Nicholson in their head? Right? You can't handle the truth. Um, <laughs> right? There's so much more that you can't. So Jesus is actually just pastorally saying, like, there's so much more I want to tell you, you can't handle it right now because it'll be too much for you. But my Holy Spirit will keep telling you these things. I love that Jesus doesn't feel it's necessary to jam every theology, every point, every truth into their heads while he's with them for three years. He recognizes they'll only get a tiny fraction of it. But he trusts his Holy Spirit will continue to speak these things in the years to come. That's the message for us. We don't have to be the Holy Spirit for people, right? The Spirit gets to speak to people. We just need to be obedient with the things he has to tell us. 
But then notice how he describes the Holy Spirit here. This is awesome. He says, the spirit of truth won't speak his own ideas, but only what he hears from Jesus. And he will continue to tell them about Jesus. And as you keep reading this, you see, what is the spirit of truth focused upon every time he's mentioned? It's Jesus. The Holy Spirit is all about Jesus. He comes from Jesus. He goes to Jesus. He speaks the words of Jesus. He magnifies Jesus. This Holy Spirit can't stop talking about Jesus and pointing to Jesus and glorifying Jesus and magnifying Jesus. The Spirit is fixated on making Jesus known. That's just his obsession as he has it. That's kind of his deal. The Spirit talks more about Jesus than, than Bubba from Forrest Gump talks about shrimp, right? It's not about shrimp pate or shrimp creole or shrimp burgers. You see the movie and it's Jesus pate, Jesus creole, Jesus is this, Jesus that, Jesus that, right? He's just obsessed about Jesus. He won't, he won't shut up about Jesus. If you don't like Jesus, you really won't like the Holy Spirit, right? Because it's all he's focused on is Jesus. He talks more about Jesus than, than my kids talk about Minecraft, which is just an absolute obsession, right? You wouldn't want to hang around with them if you don't like Minecraft. And whether it be reminding Christians that they need to be becoming more like Jesus or loving Jesus or pointing them to Jesus, or he's, he's, he's working with non-Christians and he's getting them to convict them of their sin and repent of their sin of unbelief and pointing them to Jesus as well, it's all about Jesus. The Spirit is completely focused, obsessed with Jesus and magnifying Jesus in and through the lives of the disciples, conforming us to be more and more like Jesus, drawing us to others so that Jesus can make his name known to others through our lives as we look more like Jesus. You know, I thought about titling the series, God with us, making Jesus great again. Um, maybe some red trucker hats or something like that at the same time, right? But because, I mean, that's really God with us is about making Jesus great. Not again, he's always been great, but, but that's, that's the Spirit's job is to make Jesus great. And so that's the next few things that he says when it comes to what is Jesus, why does Jesus say he needs to leave? It's he will guide into truth. The Spirit will speak what he hears. And the Spirit will glorify Jesus. Okay, so can you imagine being in the disciples' position at this point? Their whole lives are being turned upside down. Jesus, who is their entire life, is telling them he's about to be betrayed and killed and that he actually won't be destroying Rome. Rome's going to stay in control. All their hopes are falling down. They won't hear his teachings. They won't be, he won't be a shepherd there to care from the same way anymore. And on top of Jesus' impending death, which already sucked enough, now he tells them that you're going to die and you're going to suffer during this process as well, all because you follow Jesus. And then Jesus says, but this is a good thing. In fact, it's not a good thing. It's a great thing. It's the best possible thing. Because then I will send my spirit. And when my spirit comes, he will transform your lives so that you live like me. And because of that, you'll face all the same persecutions as me. And the great result of that will be that they come to know me. The more you live in love like me, the more my testimony will go out to the world. And Jesus says, this is better than him being with them. I need to leave because there's so many people out there who don't know me. And it's through my spirit in you, as you become like me, that they will come to know me as their savior. That would have been a hard message for the disciples. And again, no wonder within minutes of this, they're scattering and running because it's too hard of a message for them. But we know Jesus was right because a few days later, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls and what happens? These scared apostles who are hiding in the upper room go out in boldness preaching forth the gospel as the Spirit falls upon them and 3,000 people come to Christ in one day. Jesus understood what's going on. So that's great. That's what it meant for the disciples. 
So then, what about us? This is where it gets a little uncomfortable. Right? Because what does it mean for us? Because if, if as Christians we actually want to live in love like Jesus today, if we want for our lives to look more and more like his, it means when we come to hard passages like this, we can't just skip over them, but we actually have to ask the hard questions. So do we have the heart of Jesus? Is Jesus' heart for the world our heartbeat as well? Daily, are we consumed with the thoughts of those who don't know Jesus with God's heart? Do we see reaching the lost people of the world as central to the calling of being a Christian? Or is it like an optional add-on just for those who are hardcore Christians? Or those who have the calling of evangelism, whatever that means? Is it like, you know, buying like the DLC for a video game for those that are really serious about it? Or, or like a Wordle addicts when you enable hard mode, right? Because you're super hardcore about Wordle and so you make the more difficult. Do you guys even know that's an option? I found out that recently. You can play the hard mode of Wordle if you click the setting thing. And it makes it even more difficult for those that just don't struggle enough with that thing, right? Is that, what it, is that what this is about? For those that want to commit to Jesus, it's for those that are really serious do this. Is that, is that all he's speaking to? Is it something we only do when convenient? Which, of course, is almost never. Is it something just for extroverts who already have the gift of gab or evangelism? You see, for Jesus, there's nothing he's more passionate about than his heart for the lost. He already told him before, he says, he described the story that when there was, he had a hundred sheep and one of them wandered away and he is more excited about the return of that one sheep, that one lost sheep than the 99 who didn't wander. doesn't mean that God doesn't love us, but he just gets extra excited when it's people who don't know him who come in. Do we share that heart of his? That that's the beat of our heart is, Jesus, may you reach the lost, those who don't know you. If not, we don't understand Jesus. Again, it'd be like being married to someone who's obsessed about a certain subject and we just don't care about it all because that's the most important thing upon Jesus' heart is the lost. And the Holy Spirit is with us here right now, empowering us to live in love like Jesus enabling us to abide in the vine, and that's awesome, enabling the life of the vine to come out of us and, so that we can bear his fruit, fruit that looks like Jesus. And you know, just like he told Je- Abraham back in Genesis, he said, you'll be blessed to be a blessing, and that's awesome. But it's not just so we can acquire more stuff and feel more comfortable and more safe and get a bigger car and a bigger house and, and make our way up the ladder. That's not why Jesus is doing it. He's doing it. The blessings he's pouring out on us are for the sake of us reaching the world because his heart beats for the lost in the world to come to know him. And he so desperately wants the world to repent of their sin of unbelief and to turn to him. And he does that through us. So do we carry his heart for the lost? Are we conforming our hearts to his or are we tuning him out? Does his heart for the world impact us on a daily basis the way we live our lives and how we seek out and pursue our neighbors and make time to conveniently meet them when they're out to us? You know, so frequently, I just kind of waiting by the window. I mean, it's awkwardly just like, when are the neighbors? Tell me the neighbors. So we can run out and go greet the neighbors, right? Trying to, it's hard. It's, in this season, it's hard to figure out where the neighbors are going. You know, like I need to get like a motion camera or something that tells me when they come out. I cannot be that awkward neighbor that kind of is like, hey, good to see you. Just happened to meet you outside, right? It's just impossible to meet people in these like hibernation months of Seattle. Um, does our heart for loss impact the way we spend time with our kids, the way we spend our money, the way we live our lives, the way we speak to people online? If so, are we spending time intentionally loving those people who don't know Jesus? Are we spending time with those who don't believe the things we believe? You know, a study was done by Barna just a couple years ago. It was fascinating. They asked a bunch of, of, of not, not Christians, non-Christians, the question, what groups do you think would be difficult for you to have a natural and normal conversation with? Just who could you talk to have a normal conversation with? And they broke it into these groups. 
Again, this isn't Christian. This is just non-Christians. Talk with Muslims, 73% felt it would, be, uh, it would be difficult to have a normal conversation. Mormons, 60%. Atheists, 56%. Evangelicals, 55%. LGBTQ people, 52%. So we see there is basically half the average population has no problem talking with other people. The other half are probably introverts um, or uh, just you know, struggling. The average person just doesn't like going out and talking to people. But they have pretty much the normal problem. It doesn't matter the group. The only group that's there kind of extra is Muslims who seem intimidating to the average person out there. Then they ask Christians the same question, and check this out. Exact same question. Who would you have a struggle having a normal conversation with? The average evangelical Christian identifies as a Christian. Muslims, 87% couldn't talk to them. Mormons, 67%. Worse than the average non-Christian. Atheists, 85%. 85% of Christians say they would struggle to have a Christian, a con, just a, not share their faith, have a conversation, a normal conversation with someone who doesn't believe in God. Evangelicals, 28%. That's just hilarious. We can't even talk to our own people right? LGBTQ community, 87%. Same as talking to a Muslim. This is not sharing your faith, people. This is simply to have a normal conversation with someone who has a different belief system than you. What we see is Christians struggle more than just non-Christians at this. We're so stuck in our worldviews and so stuck in our ideas that just the idea of talking to people different than us brings us to fear, and we avoid it. Why do we as Christians struggle to engage the world? Engage those who have different worldviews and backgrounds than us, even more than the average person. You know, when our house went up for, when the house next to us went up for sale last year, almost every single of like the 30 families that looked to visit the house were Indian, right? Almost every single one of them, right? And then when I looked at demographics for Mill Creek, 20% right now of Mill Creek are from Asia. I mean, that's a massive portion of what the people that are coming in, Right? And that's awesome. But the truth is, if we do not reach out to people who, look, don't, who, who, who act different, talk different, different belief systems, we say, well, well, maybe they're from Hindu backgrounds or Muslim backgrounds or something else. doesn't matter. If we don't reach out to them, all to be honest, Northview has no future. If we don't get to look more Chinese and more Indian, right, we have no future in this place because we have to represent the demographics around us. We have to reach out to people who don't look like us, talk like us, act like us in this place. Martin Luther said back in the 60s that the most segregated hour in America is 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning because Christians struggle to reach outside of their own peer groups. As Christians, we cannot choose the easy path of just spending time with people who look like us and talk like us. We have to reach out. And if that makes anyone a bit uncomfortable talking about that, it's okay because Jesus made the disciples really uncomfortable in John 16. Right? He's making them very, very uncomfortable, asking very difficult questions. And again, it's not our effort. It's through the Holy Spirit that does this. It isn't just us pulling us up by our own bootstraps. But again, are people being drawn to Jesus because of the way we live and love like Jesus? We have no control over someone coming to Christ, but we should be attractive in the way of of seeing them, experiencing the love of Christ and who Jesus is in and through our lives. We must make ourselves available, intentionally pursuing people who don't know Jesus, letting the Spirit work through our lives. As they see Jesus in us and people are drawn to Jesus through our lives. You know, I want to invite my friend Melissa up this morning, just for a minute. Um, Melissa uh, just recently joined our church. She uh, came to Christ just a, a few months ago uh, here on, on a Sunday morning. And I just wanted to ask her a, a couple questions about that experience, what we're talking about here. Thank you, Melissa, for coming up. <laughs> so, yes, no, this is Melissa. She's been part of our church for a few months. She was even serving on the, the meal last week. But, um, Melissa, what was the largest influence that, uh, that, that drew you to Christ? What was the, the biggest thing that you feel kind of was part of that decision? Uh, my neighbor, Noel. Mm-hmm. And, and how so? Why? What, what about Noel? 
Um, so I, I met her, um, our sons ride the same bus to school. So the parents would be milling around with the kids before we get them on. Um, and one morning, uh, we were, her and I were standing with another mom, giving her advice from our separate perspectives. Um, and after, it was a really heavy conversation, and after, was kind of, I turned to her and I was like, well, how, how do you deal with this feeling, this hard feeling, this, you know, I, I can't help her, I can only give her what I know. And it was a single sentence, oh, I give that to God. Her walking with Jesus, being Jesus-like, um, she just kind of took me under her wing with that mm -hmm. one sentence, and yeah. And then what did you see in Noelle's life that attracted you? Light. Uh, she had difficulties and troubles. She's a mom of kids. Everybody knows how hard that is. Um, there's no right answer except Jesus. There's no, you know, life is hard. How do you do it? And you kept seeing the way she loved you, the way she cared for you? Oh, yes. Um, I... Sorry, this is really hard. <laughs> um, the simple idea to me was that she was my bridge to this church, to God, to this community. Um, brought me into the community group, having dinners with our kids, talking about sermons and the message and whatnot. Um, but she literally glows. Doesn't matter who you are around. She she shares it with anybody, Amen. whoever it is. It's just it's there. Amen. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. So appreciate that. Thank Sorry. you. Amen. Sorry, I know it's nerve wracking getting up here. I appreciate you willing to do that. And now, sadly, Noelle isn't here this morning. Uh, she couldn't make it this week. But um, Noelle's awesome. But what she did isn't so crazy or radical. What Noelle's done, I mean, some of you guys have gotten married. She's amazing. But she, she's not a saint. She's just someone who just tried to love others the way Jesus loved her. Right? And that became visible. And that's actually what, what drew Melissa, Melissa to Christ. And so the question then for us is, are we intentionally engaging those who are lost? And being that light, that love of Christ to others. Are we allowing him to shape our lives so that we can love others that way? And to do this, we, we can't do it passively. We can't do it again like trickle-down economics idea of it. I, I just use that phrase, I like that concept. I think for so many Christians, it's just, it's this passive view, the view that I receive all this great stuff, and the expectation is just by me receiving and me being a good person, eventually others will be impacted by it. It's just this very passive way of doing it. But no, we must be active. We must actively pursue those who don't know Jesus and sharing who Jesus is. It doesn't mean we gotta be crazy evangelists. It doesn't mean we have to be handing out tracts in every corner, though I got mad respect for those that do. It doesn't mean we have to be annoying like Bubba Gump or Bubba Shrimp of talking about Jesus, 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 Jesus in every conversation. It means we need to do what Jesus said and actually love people sacrificially and care for people. That we need to be becoming more so like Jesus that we have the same impact that he did on other people. We need to rearrange our lives and spend time with those who don't know Jesus. You know, as a family, we just signed up for a soccer league because as a pastor, I've been struggling this past year to even have time with non-Christians outside of my neighbors. And so we signed up for a soccer league for our kids so I can just spend more time, one for the kids, but also to spend more time with people who don't know Jesus. I'll be really bummed if it's all Christians that go there. Um, but, uh, but I'm like, I'm just trying to think, how do I spend more time? Because I have to be doing this. We must be actively looking ways to sacrificially love those who don't know Christ. And there's nothing, there's nothing that excites Jesus more than people coming to Christ. And so as we saw earlier, Jesus said that the world needs to repent of their sin of unbelief. As I said last week, sometimes that involves us as well. We here don't need to repent of our sin of unbelief, but we do need to repent. That'd be repenting of some of the ways in which we have not seen God's heart for the lost. 
ways in which we have maybe selfishly continued to order our lives around us caring primarily for, for number one, for ourselves. We'd repent of where we've held on to a narcissistic gospel where it's all about me. That everything God gives me is just for me and for my good and for my sake and my family of not recognizing all that he has given us. We are blessed to be a blessing. He has given us all these things so that we can become more like him and so the world would come to know him. We need to repent of where we've avoided neighbors, where we've avoided inviting other people to meals who don't know Jesus, where we've avoided ordering our lives in such a way that those who don't know Jesus become central to our lives. We need to repent where we've not been good ambassadors for Jesus. And again, when I say repent, I don't mean feel bad. I don't mean have a good cry, though maybe it'll be part of that. Repentance and biblically is about changing, reordering our lives. And so let us repent. Let us re-surrender our lives to Christ. Let's pray and ask the Lord, Father, you know, maybe you don't have this heart at all and it's just say, God, I need your heart. I want to be able to love others the way that you've loved me. I want to be able to have as be passionate for the lost as you are, Jesus. So Lord, and I don't have it. I'm selfish. I'm self-righteous. I'm self-centered. Jesus, change my heart. And ask the Holy Spirit as we abide in him to make his work in our lives produce the fruit of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now and I just say, Lord, may we re-surrender our lives to you, Jesus. As just as this next song is going to sing, Lord. Jesus, our life is yours. Help us to realign our life to yours, that we can live and love more like you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, prune those areas that are holding us back. The selfish, and maybe even remove things from us where we've gotten so consumed with, our, with us and the blessings and the narcissism of, of just our lives, focusing on ourselves. Prune those things away with us, Jesus, if you need to. Even if it's painful, because we want to love like you. We want to love those who you love, Jesus. Give us your heart for the lost, Jesus. Help us to engage with those who don't know you. Not just throughout the day, Father. We want to love what you love. We want to love who you love, Lord. Empower us, embolden us to not be afraid of conversations with people who don't think like us. But may we see it as, as central to the heart and your passion for the lost. We are your people, Jesus. Make us more like you, Father. Thank you, Jesus.